Our good friends at Johnny O welcome you to this episode. And if you've listened to Rich Take on Sports, then you know two things are important. Sharing the impact of sports in people's lives and the Johnny O clothing brand, blending those East Coast classic styles with a SoCal vibe. I've been wearing Johnny O for several years, and now you can as well with 20% off your first order by using the promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com. Live your best life with the Johnny O style and use promo code ARICHTAKE at johnny-o.com for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richard Weaver. This is episode 155. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. There will be many times in life where we all must choose a side. But for William Qualkenbush, sometimes the answer to which side you choose can just simply be yes. Known to many as Qualk, he earned two degrees from Clemson University and would become a regular for WCCP in Clemson, South Carolina, where you can now find him as a radio personality and co-host of Out of Bounds from 12 to 3 p.m. each weekday with Kelly Gramlich, heard on 105.5 and 97.5 The Roar. While he also serves as the radio play-by-play voice for Clemson baseball and women's basketball, and you might even catch him calling action for high school football as well. Our conversation with William Quackenbush. William Quackenbush, thank you. Our I hope I can call you Qualk, right? Uh, Everybody else does. You know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> I uh, I answer to just about anything that you might say. So if I just hear, my dad's a very loud person. So normally if I just heard like a booming voice, I would just turn just in case. Uh, so that's that's kind of how it works. But Qualk is fine. Yeah. William's fine. It doesn't matter. Have you been called Qualk all your life? All right. So that actually came about when I was in high school. Um, my nickname growing up was Skeet. Um, and that came from my dad said I look like a mosquito bug. And that got shortened <laughs> when I was little. I was very, you know, babies aren't tall, they're long. So I was a very long baby, uh, but very skinny and was skinny for a long time. So my dad called me Skeeter Bug and then Skeeter. And then he coached me a lot in sports. And as you know, uh, Rich, there, there is no reason to ever use two syllables when you're trying to coach somebody. You've got to have <laughs> one. And so it got shortened to Skeet. Um, and so that was my nickname growing up in sports, and that's what kind of what people called me. And then uh, it was actually Jarvis Jenkins, who played football at Clemson and, and in the NFL for a long time. He's the first one, I, to my recollection, that called me Quack. We played basketball together from eighth grade on. And so he's the one. It, that's his creation. And then it just kind of stuck. And I've yeah. had other nicknames like – Tim Beret, uh, my former boss for six years, uh, calls me Willie Q. He's the only person in the known universe that calls me Willie Q because 
Ashley Earl, one of the workers that was there when I was doing my tour, called me Willie Q. And so that was like the, the one space in Jersey where people call me <laughs> Willie Q. So it's weird how nicknames form and stick with certain people. Yes. But that's, that's where Quag came from. Okay, so we thought Jarvis Jenkins, his claim to fame was the NFL and playing at Clemson. But it's actually, <laughs> he gave you the name Quag that you're using all the time now. I mean, that's everybody on the radio or listening on the radio, you're known as Quag. I mean, that's just who you are. Yeah, it's weird, too, because, like, my dad is a pastor, and my mom is a school teacher. Neither one of them really go by Quag, like Coach Quag, nothing. But my brother played uh, baseball at Charleston Southern in college. So, like, when we went to his wedding, I wasn't Quag anymore. He was Quag because he became Quag down there. Um, You know, my sisters at various times have been Quag on softball teams or when they're coaching or whatever. And it's, you know, it, it's a name. Quackenbush is a name that sticks. It does. But it's also long. So you have to shorten it somehow. So <laughs> like my dad was Coach Q, uh, you know, when we were growing up and still is Coach Q. He does some coaching now too. Um, and and my siblings have done that too, either Coach Quack or Coach Q or something like that. So I have to be careful with that because my siblings also, you know, they have the same last name. So they get equal rights. And so depending on where we are, uh, I can't just assume that people are talking about me. But, you know, in settings like this, it's pretty clear. So I'm, I'm okay with it. But I, I like it. I really do um, because it's quick, it's it short, is, yes. and it is unique. Agreed, um, 100%. Yeah, so. yeah. And it's interesting just how the nicknames can pass down. And you're talking about you know, your brother and sister and all of that. So with my kids, it's interesting how I was – called Weave growing up, or Weaver, you know, that was how people referred to me. And now I'm hearing my kids' friends say the same thing to them. Hey, Weave, Weaver, you know, and it's like, wait a second, you know, are they talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, who are they talking to? But it's just interesting, you know, to see that. I love Willie Q, though. That is (laughs) slick. So, Kudos to Tim Bray for that, or whoever uh, the, the yeah, person Yeah, Ashley is. Earl gets Ashley credit Earl. for that. Okay, that's, she gets credit that's for right. That. Yeah, so Ashley gets uh, credit for that. But I like that. That's that's not a bad one right there as well. And you know what was surprising? When you walked in, I didn't realize how tall you are. You're a little bit oh, taller than now. me. That's the shoes. That's the no, shoes. That's, I'm, that's, I'm wearing, no, that's not the shoes. No. I was um, surprised by how... I, and obviously, we've been around each other quite a bit. And this is the first time I really noticed, like, wait a second, I think Quag is taller than me. I don't know. Maybe that means I'm I'm slimming up. Maybe that means that, like, my wife is a runner and she's tried to make me run the last couple of years. And so, you know, maybe that's maybe that's good. Maybe I need to lift a little more to, you know, fill out a little bit. <laughs> Bulk up some. Right. Um, maybe I slouch sometimes. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, six feet, six one. Yeah, well, you're a tall baby or a long baby, That's right, right long baby. Yes. And it just kept on going. I, so. I love it. Going back to those early days, you're getting coached by your dad in Little League and sports and playing basketball. What's the some of the first memories you have of gravitating towards sports and how that became such an integral part of your childhood? You know, I don't – I'm not sure I have like a, like a sports origin story because I don't remember – life without sports. It was just always there. Yeah. Like, um, I was born in June of 1989 and I went to my first Clemson game in September of 1989. So like, I, I didn't miss a home game until I was 11. So Clemson football, when did you first fall in love with Clemson football? I, 
I don't know because I my consciousness was never without it. I never I never really like understood the world without it. I can't tell you what it was like to be changed in that way or to have it added. Sports were the same. Um, we played t-ball growing up and basketball. And my dad, you know, he was a he was a really good athlete. He had arm trouble. He was a good pitcher in high school and had arm trouble. Um, he played outfield for a year. He went to Bible college up in Wisconsin and kind of, I mean, he kind of just felt the Lord tell him, you know, sports is over, focus on me. <laughs> so he moved down here and pursued the ministry. And um, so movie, he grew up in Indiana, went to school in Wisconsin, and then down here in South Carolina. That's how he met my mom. And, you know, my family's lived here ever since in various uh, parts of South Carolina. But he just has a passion for it. And my mom is not a great athlete, but she's a great fan of sports. She loves sports, not, not baseball as much. But she loves it. And so she was obviously very supportive. And my dad, I I don't think I realized until I was older how really how good of a coach my dad was to us. Like I remember playing basketball growing up where you couldn't press full court. But like I, again, long baby. And so I've got long arms and legs. I still have pretty long arms. And so my dad said, okay, you and you and you, and I was one of them. Y'all just going to stand at half court. We can't press, but you're just going to stand half court and you're just going to put your arms up. And so you can't press, but you you can stand at half court. And we'd just get steals because kids would just like dribble up oh, they'd and freeze. stop <laughs> and then try to throw it up over us. And we would just jump and knock it away and get, get baskets. Um, that's great coaching. Like I, I'll never forget the first time I ran motion offense. My dad taught it to us when I was 11 and called it triangle because there were three spots on the floor you could stand. And so, like, when I would hear, you know, Phil Jackson, the triangle offense, I'm like, well, that's what they're doing. I found out when I was older, that is totally not <laughs> what we're doing. What we're doing is, like, Bob Knight, Hoosiers, four passes, you know, Gene Hackman, oh, motion yes. offense. That's right. That's what we're doing. And so getting those concepts to be ingrained into the brain of an 11, 12-year-old to where you're not teaching them – this is the motion offense that was founded by such and such and blah, 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 blah. And this is how they've been doing for seven years. But using geometry or, you know, I can't do this, but I can do this thing that's like right up to the edge of what we can do. That, again, when you're playing, you don't know. But like when you start trying to conceptualize and think through games, I think that's one thing that stuck to me, how the creativity of that, where we weren't just like running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Like you think about youth sports. We were being coached, but we also weren't being coached at, you know, at a high school level when we were nine. The ability to dumb down those subjects, the ability to dumb down that perspective to where we could understand. I think that is something that I got from both my parents because my mom teaches high school math. And a lot of times you have to simplify complicated concepts and she's a really good teacher. So I think when I'm in uh, radio or when I'm doing a game, I... I tend to be a nerd now. Like, I get all into the stats, whatever. But in me, there's always a sense that, like, okay, if this is too complicated, you got to figure out how to make this make sense to people. And I think that's one thing I took from sports early that I realized later that, you know, we won a lot of games. And um, I also realized, and this is, well, I say it's not a knock, but it is a knock against the coaches that weren't my dad, that my dad was a better coach than the coaches I had that weren't my dad in a lot of ways. There were a couple that I really enjoyed, like growing up through rec sports, but it was, I mean, honestly, it was really a blessing 
to be able to say, my dad coached me not because he just wanted to control me or not because he just wanted me to play, but because legitimately there weren't better options and he was a, a very good option as a coach. So that, I mean, all my siblings have played and coached. I played, I haven't coached. I think I probably could. I Nobody would want that, but I think <laughs> I probably could. I have that uh, that philosophy and can relate to coaches a little bit. And my dad kind of started that ball rolling for all of us. How difficult was it for you, or was it easy that you could separate dad from coach? Um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think there was that big of a separation because he kind of stopped coaching me when I was 12. Okay. So he coached me in basketball, he coached me in baseball, and then at that point I had three younger siblings. I got a younger brother, two younger sisters. And so he kind of wanted to spend a little more time with them, and I was getting to the point where I was playing for school, and he was coaching rec, and so – um, yeah, it was just you know, a natural transition. Yeah, it was a it was a transition out of that. Yeah. But like, my dad knew how to push my buttons too, and that's another thing that I learned from him is, you know, me and one of my sisters, you can ream us out. I mean, I'll never forget. There was a time I don't know if I was eleven or twelve, but I remember exactly where I was when my dad red face blessed me out on the bench. Like, you know, parents <laughs> would put it on Facebook and it would go viral today, and like child abuse. Child abuse. People yeah. would say child abuse, but for me, that gets me going. And still, I was actually talking to someone yesterday about how, you know, people can be mean and stuff and say mean stuff, but you're never going to be meaner to me than I am to myself. My self-talk is horrible because that motivates me in a weird way. So, like, in my character, in my personality, there's this thing that needs to be challenged and corrected and scolded and, like, you're better than this, and I know because that's crappy right there. Like, you're doing a horrible job. You don't, it's like you don't even care about this, like, you know, toughen up buttercup and get out there and do it. And I, I'll never forget, like, that was the time when I realized, like, my dad knows how to coach me. He cares about how to coach me. He's not doing this to every kid, and he's not doing this to all of his children. It's not like just because we're his children, he blesses us out and sends us back out there because I've got other siblings that that didn't work well with. So, I, like, I appreciate that now as someone who – doesn't have kids. I'm 32. I don't have kids yet, but I'd like to have kids someday about, you know, how to have a bunch of kids and then parent them, not the way that I just think every kid ought to be parented exactly. like this, but parent kids and coach kids to their individual personalities and their individual skill sets. That's what makes some of the best coaches and parents that they have that viewpoint that they understand that, that each person is motivated differently. And they respond in different ways. And that's the challenge, though, because you get into that mindset of, well, this is the philosophy I'm going to use, and that's it. And that's where you see the situations happen where players are upset or, you know, you don't have a good relationship with your kids because you're not trying to understand them from their perspective and what you know, motivates them, you know, from that standpoint. How, how bad do you beat yourself up, though? Like, I'm talking, <laughs> you know, are you... After each radio show, are you your own worst self-critic, basically, and really analyze, or are you able to compartmentalize, all right, maybe I wasn't happy with that show, tomorrow's better, and you know, almost have amnesia to look forward to the next opportunity? You know, it's interesting. I am much harder on myself in sports and probably like harder on myself in marriage and harder on myself in like other other things besides radio, because to me, when I was growing up listening to sports talk radio, 
I, like, I don't, I didn't know what was good or bad. I just knew what was interesting to me. And so interesting to me was the standard. If I'm interested, that's good. If I'm not interested, or I think this is weird or off kilter, or I'm not sure about this, it's bad. So I, I know Rush Limbaugh has a, has a, or did, a God rest his soul, but Rush Limbaugh, who is one of my, I probably shouldn't say this in 2021, it might get me canceled, <laughs> but Rush Limbaugh is one of my early radio influences. I enjoyed listening to him. I think he is him. for a lot of people, yeah. actually. Um, and one of the things that he would always say is, if I'm not interested in what I'm talking about, then you won't be either. Yes, that's what I was going to ask you. How do you balance trying to talk about topics that are interesting to a vast majority of people versus what you're interested in? Well, I think there's a couple things at play here. The first thing is that I feel like I know decently well. Now, I'm always being challenged on this by things that I discover over time, but I think I know decently well who my listener is. As long as you know who your average listener is, then you know what can get them going. And a lot of times the average listener is not me. I like watching the NBA. My average listener does not like watching the NBA. That doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of listeners that do. That doesn't mean we're never going to talk about the NBA. But it does mean that if we're talking NBA more than we're talking NFL, or certainly college football, basketball, baseball, softball, whatever the case may be, then I'm doing it wrong. So just because I have interest in something doesn't mean that it's worth three hours. There needs to be that synergy where, yes, I, you know, I need to be interested in the topic, but if only I'm interested in the topic and my average listener is not, um, you know, then, then Kelly and I, Kelly's my co-host, I know she's been in here too, um, that she, she and I are not doing our jobs. Um, at the same time, if we are not interested by the things that we're saying, then even somebody that likes them is going to be bored by them. So the ability to be honest and upfront about who we are as people, what makes us tick away from sports, how we're programmed in life, the things that are important to us. When, when you start showing your people that side of yourself, and I say your people, your audience, fans, whatever, when you show people that side of yourself, then they feel more comfortable telling you more about them. And that's one way that we know a little bit more about the audience. Now, again, our preconceived notions are changed all the time. I know this year we've done uh, way more softball than we thought. We started having, uh, here in Clemson, we started having John Rittman on once a week. And we were thinking, you know, this will help people get in touch with the game. We can ask them about rules. People have like really technical, like basic questions. And by the end of the year, we would have Rittman on on a Monday. You know, they're winning a million games, you know, and had the longest win streak in the country, whatever, at one point. And people were calling to follow up and being like, yeah, you know, I watched games this week. You know, I've never been a softball fan, but I love this team, blah, blah, blah. And so we ended up talking more and more about softball. And we realized that our fans took to softball, our listeners, our audience took to softball more quickly and more readily than we assumed. So you adjust your expectations. You adjust the plan for some shows. You put a little more softball in there. And there are other times where you go with topics and you're like, man, this is going to be a hit. And you, I mean, nothing, crickets. It's <laughs> just a dud. So you, right, so you learn, okay, that didn't work. Maybe people are out of town or maybe that's just a way of talking about this thing that's generally popular that maybe just didn't stick today. So that doesn't mean that you never talk about things to try to educate people. I think one mistake that young broadcasters make, and I would say this for myself too, is there's a youthful exuberance of 
I can't believe I get to do this. And there's an arrogance of they need me to do this. And I remember when I got started, I sort of had that mindset of there are things that I know more about than other people and I need to educate them because if I could just tell them. Exactly. That's my point. That's why I think that's such a balance that you have to strike in terms of I want to make sure I'm sharing the knowledge that I have, my opinions about this topic versus there might be people that are like, this is boring. I don't want to listen to this. That's right. And that's a tough balance. Well, and you can't listen to every single bit of criticism like that. You know, if we stop talking about something because one person hit our text line and said, nobody cares about this. Well, if I got 20 texts of people that have legitimate comments and questions about it, and one guy says, nobody cares. Sometimes I get, you know, I get, uh, you know, in the right frame of mind. <laughs> and I'll go, yes. it's pretty, you know, it's pretty arrogant to refer to yourself as, everybody or to say nobody because you don't like you don't know everybody <laughs> you don't see the text pouring in so there are times where you have to kind of push through that and say no 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 this this is important this is important for people to understand it's important for some reason and you know a lot of times if it's just important because I care or because Kelly cares people won't stick but you have to tell people why it's important if you want people to get to know it you know that's that's another thing that young broadcasters make the mistake of because I'm on the air people will listen to me that's not true. People expressly are looking for reasons almost not to listen to you. If you're new, particularly in a, in a low, I wouldn't even call it a small market because we know Greenville Spartanburg is big. We know that Greenville Spartanburg is the second largest college football market in the country. Uh, people are making a mistake if they call this a small market for what we do for, for sports talk. But if you are in a, a local setting, our station has been local for more than two decades. There is an inherent skepticism of new people coming in, especially when there are more established and experienced people, I won't say old, but more established <laughs> and experienced people who have been there for a long time and have built up that trust. And rather than trying to explain yourself to people, the best way to go about it is to relate to people. And I think the success and failure of different personalities and shows and so forth it's sometimes it's, you know, it's too much information, not enough entertainment. Sometimes it's too much entertainment, not enough information. But I think more often than not in markets like the one that we're in, I think it's about relatability and people saying, you know what? I don't agree with everything you're talking about. I don't agree with everything you're saying, but I see myself in you to some degree. I see you in me and I can connect with you on some, it doesn't even have to be a some sports level. level. On some level, yeah. you are me, I am you. Let's do this thing together. And that, I think, is something that I didn't understand when I was doing campus radio at Clemson back in, around 2010, 2011, and what I've learned now after being on air uh, at the Roar for 10 years. When, when did you make that realization? Or do you, do you have a memory of you started seeing that? Uh, um, or did it just organically just continue to evolve? I think some of it is that I worked with good people. You know, like I... There, there are people who are always coming and going and things that don't work and things that do work. And so you try to learn from that. And I think sometimes we try to fit into the, the caricature that we see work. And the best piece of advice I've ever gotten was either you're going to work as yourself or you're not. We see it in politics all the time. People trying to be something that they're not to try to win elections are inherently flawed as candidates, not as politicians or people, but as a candidate, 
because voters, I know we get this image of like, you know, voters are easily manipulated, all that stuff. And to some degree, that's true largely. But voters are also skeptical and they smell a rat when they smell one. They you know, when one's it. there, that's exactly right. Yes. And so you, you know when somebody's being genuine. There's, a, there's just a feeling that you get. And so rather than trying to fit into a, a stereotype or a, a caricature, trying to do a show that reflects your own personality is the only way that it can work. And when people try, either when people's personalities don't stick with the market, that's one reason that they fail. But another thing is, you see somebody work and you go, I want to be just like that, instead of trying to be the best version of you. And so rather than having that realization like in a moment, I think seeing why things worked or didn't work, and okay, this thing, this show works over here, but also this show works, and they're not the same. So what is different about those shows and what's the through line? What's the connecting point between those? And it turns out that even if people, you know, even if it frustrates people sometimes, the authenticity of the host, the authenticity of the product is what brings people back. And so that, whenever it came, when I started doing, I think I started hosting on a regular basis on weekdays in 2014, I believe, and working with Dutch Coleman and working with Kelly Graham, like that, those are two dynamite people right there that allow you to be the best version of yourself because they are comfortable being the best version of themselves. And we just, in both of those instances, we mesh so well together. It allowed that type of product to flow forth. Yeah. And I think there's an aspect too of being authentic to yourself and who you are, what you're talking about, it's, uh, it almost allows you to work smarter instead of having to work harder. Because I think when you're trying to be fake, you have to work so hard at trying to replicate somebody else rather than just be who you are, be your personality. And it's going to come much easier than, you know, you trying to, I mean, that's a lot of work <laughs> to try to be, you know, somebody completely different than who you are, just because I mean, God has created you in a certain way and you're shaped throughout your life by the, your environment and how you're brought up to be who you are, you know, or that's, that's who you are. And you talk about Kelly and talking about authentic and genuine, you guys seem to just be in a position where you've known each other for like all your life, it seems. It just, and, and I know the story of how you guys basically got connected through Jeff Callen. So, I don't know if you've ever sent Jeff some type of big Christmas gift or something <laughs> for. Uh, we have a thank you exchange yes. about once a year. <laughs> okay, you know, good. it's one of those. And but but share the the genesis of that. For there might be some people that don't know. I know you've talked about it before, and again, I know the the story. But again, it's almost like how it just organically happened that you know Jeff sees you guys talking and you're in a debate or whatever. But share how that came about. Well, I can, I mean, I can say a couple things. You talked about being who God created you to be. I do think that God created us to be the best version of ourselves. So in a way, that's not just good advice. That's like biblical and scriptural, and it's, it's foundational in who we are. So, you know, outside of the professional realm, just personally being the best version of who God created you to be, I think that's the, that's the, that's the reason we're here is to, to do that and to honor him. And so with that in mind, there's another biblical principle of like, in Matthew, Jesus says, you know, 
basically don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow is going to take care of itself. And that's where Kelly comes in. So we actually met when she was a freshman and I was in grad school at Clemson and I was working for IPTE. And part of my duties for IPTE were to write monthly features in the IPTE magazine, Orange Experience. It was pretty new at the time. And one of my assignments was to write a, I don't know, thousand words, 1200 words. I can't remember how many sort of expose on the anatomy of a three-pointer with this freshman sharpshooter named Kelly Gramlich. And so we met in Little John and she was doing just a little shoot around and I asked her some questions like, it was, it was pretty official, I got to say. It was pretty official. <laughs> we didn't have a camera there. It was pretty official. And um, so we just, we met and I wrote that and that was that. And then I covered women's basketball and worked in the sports information office for Tim and, and was just at their games and watching her play. Well, then she was doing some work in the sports information office when I was doing some radio. Uh, this is, I don't know, three, four years down the road. And I remember it was just a random game. I don't know, you know, the particulars of the game. But I know afterwards, I made my way across the floor from the radio spot to where the SID folks were posted up and because I knew them and we were chatting. And Kelly and I got in a discussion about the Spurs and the Warriors, I believe is right. And I think my stance probably was that at Golden State, this is this is a pretty regrettable stance now, but that <laughs> Golden State's reliance on the three was not it was not going to help them come postseason. I'm pretty sure that was the year they made their first run. But anyway, we were arguing back and forth about that because, I, like, I, I was a shooter in high school. I did a good job. I was about a 40% three-point shooter in high school. Didn't really have any other skills, so that's why I stopped. But Kelly is a really good three-point shooter at Clemson, so we're both coming from that standpoint. And so Jeff just said, why don't you guys talk about this on the radio? And at that point, Dutch and I were – doing a show every day. And so I just invited Kelly, yeah, why don't you come in and you know, just hang out, you know, just sit, learn. That's the way I got in on radio is sort of just learning, um, doing a show uh, with a guy named Rob Jones um, on campus and then solo when he got a job at the Roar and then later with Sporting News. And you just, you just learn by watching and doing. And then Mickey Plyler gave me a chance to fill in for him a few times and I was doing that. And to sit in right before I got hired, about a month before I got hired, I started coming in Mondays and just kind of over the summer, you know, something to do when you're in grad school. And um, that was also an answer to prayer. And if we had like three more hours in the podcast, I could <laughs> I could go into that part of the story. But anyway, I, I want I've always wanted to be somebody who gave the same way that I got, where the opportunities that I was given that when I get them, I'm in a position to give them back to other students or people who are interested in the business. Not that I want to like put my name on the William Quackenbush, you know, radio tree or anything like that, but just to give people a chance to see if they want to do this or not, to give people a chance to see what their skill sets are. We've had interns that, you know, have gone on to work for ESPN and we've got interns that have gone to production and interns that have gone on to video and interns that like radio and interns that are SIDs and like, that that's the kind of thing that I want. Like, what's your, can we find a way to help you like point you toward your passion to some degree when college is very confusing in that way? So Kelly was just another one of those to me. Like she's going to intern and we'll just see Well, she really loved it. She had a segment. It was, I don't, I don't know what it was. It was like a, it was like an A or B um, thing where she would throw out topics and Dutch and I would pick a side and argue and 
we didn't really know that far ahead of time what we were going to talk about. So it was pretty organic. And so we started giving her more and more responsibility. Well, then Dutch had to leave. He had a job opportunity and uh, his, his wife had kind of moved on to another gig and he was taking the family up where she was. And so anyway, we were looking, I was looking for another co-host and it ended up being Kelly. And so we worked together really seamlessly, but that, I mean, it's just legitimately an art. I mean, as, as humble a beginning as you can have an argument across the floor at, after a basketball game about an unrelated basketball game that was months in the making led to five plus years on the air. And now she's doing great things with ACC network and the sky's the limit for her. And like I said, because she is comfortable in her own skin, it allows me to, you know, if, if you're working with somebody that's not, it almost like instinctively makes you like recoil just a little bit because you, you'd like to keep this, you know, you got to keep this going for three hours and you don't know if they're going to shut down. If you go like way out, you're going to scare them, you know? And Kelly is not like that. And Dutch was not like that. So that, that's how all of those relationships sort of came together at the perfect time to sort of help move this thing forward. Then from your perspective, just in terms of how you and Kelly work together, how much prep are you guys doing in conjunction with each other? And I guess where I'm trying to go with this is obviously there's an aspect you want it to be natural. You want it to be organic. And so how much are you sharing, you know, your thoughts with her versus we want it to be organic live on radio, you know, from that perspective. So what type of balance do you try to create in terms of prep versus making it natural reactions? You know, I, I like to say I do sports talk 24 hours a day. Like I just, I don't stop. But Roy Philpot, who used to be in our time slot, his advice always, and when you're working with Roy, you hear him say it. I've done shows with Roy dating back years. And he always says, save it for the show. Don't, I don't want to hear your take now. Don't flesh it out because the first time you flesh it out is always the best and the most organic. And so he's like big about that. I'm not as much of a stickler as Roy is. But we have gotten to the point now where particularly like when football season starts, unless there's a really good like piece of news or an article or a column that gets us thinking, we can just sort of say, hey, let's, can we, let's just talk about a few games today. Okay, and she'll throw one out, and I probably have a take on it. I'll throw one out, and she'll probably have a take on it. And we just sort of keep that running. Like right now, as we're recording this, there is a direct message thread that I've already updated multiple times this morning. And she's already updated multiple times this morning with articles, ideas, topics, things of that nature. And then when you have a conversation the way that we do, there's always leftovers from the day before. So at this point, the plan is very, very loose. I prefer a loose plan anyway. You know, you work with... You just have a framework. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know your bent, Richmond, but you you have no notes here. You you probably have some questions in your mind. Exactly. You have no notes. I've worked with some people who have to have questions, and even sometimes potential follow-up questions based on what I might say, written down on a notepad or on a laptop or something, because they need that structure. When I speak to a group or even do a show, I work well with bullet points and maybe some key ideas that I want to say, but I don't need to write out a whole speech. I feel comfortable enough in, in, as myself 
that I feel like I can fill in the blanks with whatever I feel passionately about and what I'm prepared for. That's another thing, man. Preparation where you don't have to worry about, like, again, putting up a front. You don't have to worry about this second person that you're trying to be and being true to that. Exactly. Then preparation is the only thing. If I'm prepared and I'm me, then that's the show. You know, if Kelly's prepared and she's her, then that's the show. Now, when did you start doing impressions? <laughs> I've heard you do Bill Walton. I've heard you yeah. do Dabo Sweeney. When, when did you start focusing on impressions? Gosh. You know, I'm, I'm really not sure. I've always been, I've always been sort of um, just enamored by impressions and the way that people say things. Like, I, I tell this story a lot. My, um, I know my mom, the first time I was going to call a women's basketball game, I was talking to my parents, and I was like, you know, I know that I'm going to do fine, but I, you just get nervous because it's something you're doing for the first time. Of course. And I'll never forget, my mom said, it's not your first time. You've been calling basketball for years. And it was true because when I was growing up, I used to mute the video games I would play, and I would call the games. You know, whether it was – you know, Keith Jackson, the granddaddy of them all, like whether it was Keith Jackson on <laughs> NCAA Game Breaker 99, right? Playing with Eric Crouch in Nebraska or something. Um, or it was, you know, NBA Jam with, or NBA Jam Extreme, I guess was the PlayStation version, with Marv Albert. He's on fire! You know, like, you just learn how people talk and then you hear that. And I've actually wondered sometimes, because I do hear exactly how people say the things they say, and I try to emulate that. I've had this thought that creeps in every now and then about like, am I ever going to have my own identity? Because I tend to try to replicate other people. And I see ways of being better at my job that other people do. And I hear them as they say, say them first. And so maybe that's where that comes from is hearing Marv Albert say, and the foul, yes! <laughs> you know, like, hearing him say that as opposed to hearing me say, and the foul, yes! You know, like, that's diff That's totally different and, and a totally unique way of doing it. So, like, I don't want to be a mashup of Marv Albert and Bill Walton and Marty Brenneman and Vin Scully and Jim Phillips and Pete Yannity and Don Munson. And, I, like, I don't want to be all like Keith Jackson and, you know, Brent Musburger but I do want to draw some things from them and create my own identity. So it's, it's weird. Like at, at times I've seen it as almost a curse where I can't help but hearing exactly how people say things and trying to do it just like them. And sometimes I see it's a blessing because, you know, it's, it's fun for people and it makes people laugh. Some of your impressions are fantastic. Especially, I, I well, love the Bill you. Walton one. Oh, man. <laughs> well. All you do is, and honestly. <laughs> yeah, so how do you do that? Well, I mean, there's honestly, sometimes you copy other impressionists. So like I'll, I'll never forget that um, it was Frank Caliendo. Caliendo oh, really good. did it for me where he's, I'm like, shoot, this he's guy over can do the 50 top. impressions, yes. and I can do like four. So like his Bill Walton is my favorite thing because all he does is like mix up the senses. And it's so true. Like Walton, you'll be calling a game. He's like, I could smell that foul from the 10th row. It was <laughs> blood and sweat and tears and agony and champions and conferences. Like he just, he just says all kinds of weird stuff. It doesn't make any sense. There's no flow to it. That's exactly right. Oh. I mean... He drove in there like a tie-dye rainbow streaming across the rocky landscape. Like, what are you even talking about? That doesn't even make any sense. I'm doing that in my mind, and what you're saying is not even true. That doesn't even work. But you know what happened. Somehow, Somehow. what Walton said doesn't even doesn't amount to anything. It doesn't make any sense. But you see what he's talking about, you know? And 
I saw Caliendo do that, and I was like, you know what? That's funny because there's a grain of truth in it because he sounds like the guy, and because he's taking it to the like the nth degree, and people understand the joke. And so I think you know somebody like Frank Caliendo, who does impressions like for a living, or now like you know in five years, no one's going to know Frank Caliendo, but they're going to know you know Joey Molinaro from Barstool who's doing the Nick Saban, Nick Saban yeah. impressions and everything else that, you know, people like that who can do that are pretty inspiring because they, they send me down a thought process of like, if we're, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to, you know, poke fun at somebody on the air, this is the kind of thought process they had. Okay. How can I do it? That's, you know, a little bit like what, you know, more like something that I would say. How much do you enjoy play by play versus being on the radio and, you know, the talk show? When I think about my purpose, um, like my why, why I was created. I honestly believe that I was put on the earth to do play-by-play. I do. That's when where, did you come to that realization? Um, when I was in sixth grade, um, we had to fill out these career assessments, and my career assessment said NBA player. I've already told you I have one skill. It <laughs> yeah, you could shoot it, though. Yeah, but... That ain't enough, Rich. I'm <laughs> no, just, I, I'll tell you right now. Believe me, I know as well. But seventh grade rolls around. And I always knew, you know, I'm, I'm muting my video games. I'm, I grew up watching Rich Eisen and Stuart Scott every morning. Like, I would get up for school, and I would watch Sports Center, and my mom would, like, pick a commercial break and come and, like, read a psalm to me. And that was my morning. Like, I would be eating breakfast on the couch with my food on the coffee table, Sports Center's playing, and at a commercial, we'd mute it. And man, if it was a long psalm, I'd be like, Mom, let's go. They're back. Like, we gotta watch the highlights. I gotta leave in, in 10 minutes. Like, what are you doing? And um, so that was that was my routine. And I just thought, you know, being on Sports Center would be the most fun thing. And I still think, you know, being on a on a studio show will be the most fun thing. I just recently met Kelsey Riggs, and that's one thing I told her. I said, you know, I like I I just have had this feeling that being on a hosting a studio show would be like the most fun thing ever. Um, so I said, I want to work for SportsCenter. I want to work for ESPN when I was 12. And um, over time, that's changed a little bit to where I really think that I love calling games. And I, the sport that I love calling most is baseball. And I've been doing it the longest. So I started calling baseball games for a wood bat team called the Carolina Chaos that played at Southern Wesleyan University. I did their a PA for a year and then transitioned to the – online stream and we're talking how, how old were you i was i think it was after my freshman year of college so i'm 19 and that was my first gig and it paid a little bit and i mean we're talking tens of people i mean we're talking like friends and family only um and like you got to sit through rain delays and you got no information i mean zero because it's a wood bat summer league and it's not the coastal plains and it's not Cape Cod. There's a third tier down. That's where the league was. And so you had a lot of JUCO guys, D2s, small D1s. You know, there were a couple of Clemson players. And we had a reliever from Georgia one year that came and closed for us. But it's fun because with no information, you just have to call the game. And you don't have any background on this pitcher. You have very little background on this hitter for your team. You just know what he did last week, you know. And so it's very raw. And it's... You know, you're just telling a story of the game. It's not about storylines. You're not telling a story of their lives or anything like that because you don't know it. You just know. You don't even have their stats, really. Their stats are not updated all the time. So you're just telling the, the romantic story 
of how this pitcher is trying to get this batter out. And I think there's something super romantic about that. And I, I've never fallen out of love with calling baseball. I love calling baseball. That's interesting. Yeah. But you're more of a basketball guy, though. Yeah. I mean, I would say my favorite sport to play is basketball. My favorite sport to watch is football. My favorite sport to call is baseball. But I did. I never played football growing up. Like, I grew up in a place where um, f- youth football was not really a thing before we moved to Central and Clemson area. And my brother, we moved in third grade, and he really wanted to play football. And he was in that age where you could start. Like, you're eight, nine years old. You can go ahead and start playing. I was 11. So, you know, I, that's pretty much come and gone. That's right. I'm, I'm like 90 pounds. I don't need to play football. <laughs> and so I played baseball when I was 11 and 12. I kept playing. And then after 12, I just stuck to basketball because that's what I was best at. That's what I really wanted to do. All my siblings played multiple sports throughout. They kept playing. My youngest sister, I think she was more like me, where she specialized a little bit earlier in softball. But I'm the only one that – Gave up on baseball. And she's the only one, I think, that gave up on basketball. So we all kind of did the same stuff. But, um, yeah, I like, to me, baseball is somewhere in my blood that I just love. I love the things about it that people hate. I love that the game takes nine years. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Now, there is a limit, though. No, thank you. There is, right. There is a limit. And I've started calling more softball, and i got to be honest, Calling softball is is great because the games are done <laughs> exactly. in like an hour forty, two exactly. hours, max. two hours. I mean, and the and baseball out. across the way, they're in the fifth inning. Like this is <laughs> awesome. I'm going to get dinner. It's amazing. So, um, but like the 162 game season, gosh, I love that so much. I love that baseball. You can write the narrative, especially if you follow a team, and if you're calling games for a team. You can help fans follow the story of that team, follow the progression of that player. There's there's so much context that you can you can get and you can give on the radio because you have time, not just in the length of the season, but you have time between pitches. You have time in the game to tell that story. I think if somebody doesn't love that stuff about baseball, they can't call it. I think you can do a fine job when the ball's put in play, but you can't make people entranced by the game. I agree. And you 100%. know, basketball, I love basketball, particularly high level basketball, because when there's good ball movement and there's good defense and what, and especially when you're calling for a team and that team is good, there's nothing quite like it because the action's so good and it's easy for me. I'm a high energy person anyway, so it doesn't take a lot to ratchet it up, you know, but you can get people really enthralled with the game to that degree. And then football, I've never called college football. I've done high school football. Football is the marriage of those two, where you have quick action when the ball is snapped and a lot of action when the ball is snapped versus, and it's more of a rhythm like baseball. Yeah, there's pitches, but there might be eight pitches to a batter before he puts it in play. Football. Oh, yeah. You, you do know, have you a cadence. Have the play clock. There's a yes. cadence and a rhythm to the game. And especially, like I work with Donnell Clark, former Clemson defensive lineman in high school football, and he is great. And we have a great rapport back and forth where you get in a rhythm of like, he knows about how much he can say, I know about how much I can say, and then the ball snap the next play. And I love that football's a marriage of those things. And I, I was talking to somebody just recently about how, you know, maybe I love baseball more from a like a calling the game perspective because I've done it more often. But I do think there, like, there are certain people who have that, that love for baseball that 
transcends all the stuff that people think stinks about the game, and you actually embrace that. And I just think that's where my niche is. Yeah, I could definitely see that just from a perspective. I've done some color work in baseball and basketball. And for me, baseball was a real challenge just because I don't have that love of the game. And it's the things that you talk about that drive me crazy about the game of baseball. You know, I'm a big proponent. Go to seven inning games. That's it. You know, and, and if it's going into extra innings, just have a home run derby. And that decides, <laughs> you know, I and mean, that's way out in left field in terms of, you know, my thoughts on baseball. But there is definitely an aspect. You've got to have a love for it. And I, I think especially in baseball because it is so slow and you've got to be able to create the story of the game itself. And it's hard if you don't really have that love and the passion for the little intricacies about baseball. So what would be the the next step if you're given the opportunity of climbing to something different play by play or you have an opportunity to be, you know, on studio as a hoster? How would you feel about which one you would choose? Yeah, that's a good question. Before I do that, I want to do the political debate thing where I'm actually going to do the opposite political debate. You asked me a question earlier and I went on inside. Uh, I do love doing my show. I love doing my show every day because it doesn't feel like work. You're showing up, you're doing 15 hours a week. Yeah, and, and you're talking just, sports 24 hours fun, a day anyway. So, right. right? <laughs> so I don't, when I say I feel like I was put here to do play by play, I don't want it to seem like I'm discontent when, you know, when we're in studio, you know, doing our daily show. There was like last year, there was a there was a point where I was I was sort of praying, like, okay, God, am I ever gonna call a game again? You know, are we, you know, is is if football doesn't happen, how does that trickle down affect our jobs? How does it affect this industry? Like, you gotta show me something, you know, give me some sort of hope and like increase my faith to this degree. I, you know, and part of that is that my heart is not just with play by play. I give the example of, um, and this is going to be an outdated example very soon, but I give the example of Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, where, have you seen that movie? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Oh, yeah. The, the compass he has that points toward what he loves or what yeah. he wants in life, and the whole movie is pointing toward the Black Pearl, and then it flips, and it's toward people. It's toward Keira Knightley's character. It's toward the people in his own ship and his own crew at the end, and he's, like, annoyed by it. But that's, that's what his heart did. And you see that shift of what he values and what's important to him in his heart in the movie. Now, there's a that is not like a spiritually enriching movie, but there is a spiritual element to that, that we sort of have an obligation to fulfill what it is that, that God has put into our hearts. And I tell people sometimes that I believe right now what's in my heart is certainly play-by-play, certainly sports talk, certainly you know leveraging this platform, but also specifically Clemson is in my heart uh, because it's been there since I was three months old. And because... It's all you've you ever know, known. That's right. I thought I was going to have to go to like South Carolina or Winthrop for broadcast journalism. And Eddie Smith convinced me, I believe with God's providence, that I could do everything I wanted to do with a Clemson degree. So I said, there we go. There you go. Going to Clemson. Eddie Smith has impacted so many people. Eddie yes. Smith was there when I was at Clemson and... I got to Clemson in 1989 when you were born. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're not aging each other. No, here, we're not. And I, I, I forget that. Eddie, Eddie never taught me a class. He never taught a class at Clemson, but he, he may have been the most impactful person on me from communications. Uh, Dave Woodard was the most impactful professor I had. I was a poli-sci minor. Um, 
I love that man to death. Eddie, I think, was the most impactful communications professor I had, even though he never taught me to class. Because without him going through that on a visit in May before my senior year of high school, I probably wouldn't be there. So Clemson's in my heart. This community's in my heart. You know, I've lived in central Clemson or Seneca for 22 years, from middle school on until now. My wife and I live in the area. We don't want to leave because that's where we feel called. That's where we feel passionate. So it's one thing to be passionate about play-by-play. It's one thing to be passionate about sports talk. But it's another thing to be passionate about doing it for a certain community or for certain people. So if you're asking me, you know, what would I leave this for? The, like, Sunday school answer would be, I would leave this for whatever it is that God changes my compass to point toward. Uh, if you're asking me just in my brain, yes, um, I love MLB Network. I think it will be so fun to be in an MLB Network studio and chopping it up with former big leaguers and managers and GMs and just, like, watching games and bouncing around games for, like, three hours. I think that would be so much fun. So that's one. Two is, I think probably being a, a play-by-play, either radio or TV, for a Major League Baseball team. I would love to do that, too. But if you're asking me what, like right now, where am I at right now, I love what I'm doing. Yeah. And I love where I am. I love the people that I work with. And I want to, as much as I possibly can, do what I'm called to do in a way that loves and serves and informs and educates and entertains the Clemson community. Well, you can hear that through the your radio show. I mean, it, it's, it's clearly evident that you do love what you're doing and this community as well. As we're wrapping up, because I know you've got other things you've got to do also. I, I'm such in a bad terms judge of a radio I show. I know. How long have yes. been here? Like, yes. I mean. Oh, we could talk for hours, I promise <laughs> yes. you. We definitely could. <laughs> Words of wisdom, though. I'm big on phrases, quotes, mottos, or just life advice that you might have heard, you've leaned on, or somebody has shared with you, any come to mind to you that you would categorize as words of wisdom that have helped you? Gosh, that's a really hard, that's a really hard question. I think I'm going to cheat and give several that have been really good. They come to my mind right now. One is something my dad has taken into ministry and I think has really helped me in life. There are a lot of things that are divisive to people. And even now in our society, we're so divided. And I think sometimes we're, we're conscious about that. And sometimes it's subconscious because of the messaging we receive and because of the, the payouts for dividing people and getting everybody siloed and in, in your corner, making sure your corner's together so that you know you have a captive audience for whatever you're saying. I think there's a, a definite benefit to some for that, but it's not good broadly in society. And that's true in the church. So there, there are some things that are divisive in churches, and my dad always has given us permission to say yes instead of picking a side. So like these very high-level theological discussions that aren't like you know the, the main tenets of your faith, that Jesus is my Savior and he died for our sins, rose on the third day, all those major tenets of faith. If it's not one of those, then dad has always been like, I don't understand why people feel like it has to be this or this when there's scripture to back up both, when there's evidence for both. You just say yes, and you don't have to understand it. You just say yes. And there are two things that that did for me. Um, and my dad is never like, I can't remember a conversation where he said that. And I thought, wow, my mind's immediately blown. But it's <laughs> like when you hear enough sermons where he says that, you kind of like, you start to live it. There are a lot of 
issues that we tackle, very serious issues, where I think because of politics, because of preference, because of religion, because of any number of factors, acceptance, I mean, there's a lot of those things, that people feel the need to run to an extreme and find friends and then like huddle in a corner protected by the friends that you found, right? So I don't ever have to engage that other side where they're doing the same thing. Because, you know, if I don't take a staunch stance on this, then the opposite political side or the opposite theological side or the opposite cultural side then gets power. And then they think that I'm one of them and I'm not, and other people think I'm one of them and I'm not, and oh, I'm so scared. But logically, there are so many times where instead of picking a side, it just makes sense to say, yes, two things can be true at once. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, we don't have to choose one lane or the other. We can marry these two ideas. And we can sometimes say, I don't know. That's another thing that my dad gave us freedom to say. Sometimes I think preachers, teachers, sports talk radio people, we always feel like we have to have an answer for stuff. And it's good to be free to say, I don't know. Another thing is like, Monty Lee always says this, Clemson's baseball coach, he says, be great where your feet are. And being great requires presence and it requires attention. And so being present is something I struggle with. And I think a lot of people do because of Twitter and because I tend to, you know, I, I wasn't diagnosed with ADD, but I do have <laughs> distracted tendencies. I'll say that. Distracted tendencies. Yeah, I like that. I have distracted <laughs> tendencies. And so I, I think it's, that's good advice for me to remember that where you are is where you are. So be present where you are and then to pay attention to what's going on where you are, not to what's going on in Bangladesh, not that that's not important or not what's going on somewhere else, but make sure you're paying attention to what's in front of you. Make sure you're paying attention to the, the people that are important and the things that are important and you're prioritizing those things. That's what that means. It doesn't just mean in a baseball context, my feet are in the batter's box, therefore get a hit. It also <laughs> means sometimes my feet are in the dugout. Sometimes my feet are in class. Sometimes my feet are in church. Sometimes my feet are in a meeting. Sometimes my feet are, you know, inside the studio of Richmond Weaver. And so I've got now an obligation that I've given myself by playing that over and over. I got to be great here. I got to make an impact here. I mean, there are verses that come to mind, um, you know, and I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even pick one. Um, there's a verse, I think it's in Colossians, it says, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And it helped me, you know, places where you don't want to be great. I don't care about this Friday 8 a.m. class. I don't care about this menial task when I'd rather be calling a game. I don't want to do this paperwork. I don't want to do this client meeting. I don't want to do this, you know, chore at home. But you get that reminder. When you, when you put that in your brain, that reminder comes back. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And if, you know, when I talk to especially young people, I say that's great advice to take into whatever you're doing because sometimes we tend to give importance to the main goal. Of course. And not give importance to the journey and the little steps it takes to get there. And I think that's a mistake because, like, everybody says it's about the journey, not the destination. And that's, that's counterintuitive because we can say that all we want, but in our brains, we glorify destinations. Of course, we think when, of it in that term. My wife and I are different like this. She'll get in the car and she'll go, you know, we were driving through Greenville after church on Sunday. We're driving through Greenville. And she says, why don't you just go up Paris Mountain? Well, I know the quickest way to get to, <laughs> uh, we're going to her parents' house. I know the quickest way to get to your parents' house. 
And it ain't going all the way up Paris Mountain and all the way down. That's not. But she is comfortable. She actually enjoys the journey. She does. And my goal when I get in the car is to get out of the car in the quickest, most efficient way possible. I'm a destinations guy. That picture of her saying, you know what? Let's take the scenic route. And let's not worry about time as much. Let's not worry about efficiency as much. Let's enjoy the way home rather than two hands on the wheel, leaned over the steering wheel. White knuckling, getting home, right. right? That's right. And that's how I do it. But that's, her perspective is right if you're taking that from just being in a car into life. That that appreciation for the journey for young people is hard, but it is worthy. It's worth it to be passionate about the little menial things that you're doing along the way. And for a person of faith like myself, if you can make it about something beyond yourself, if you can make it about glorifying a higher power and taking attention off of you and putting focus on the right thing, something that means a lot to you, then that helps to gain a further appreciation for those things. Of course. Well, it, it's it's been a journey for us to come to this destination of <laughs> you finally on the podcast. It, it took took a long time, you know but we I'm finally glad. made it. I'm right? glad. Appreciate the journey, man. <laughs> exactly. The we, destination's been great because we appreciated the journey. We and we appreciate it for a while. We yes, did. <laughs> we sure did. Well, Clark, thank you so much. And I will be calling you Willie Q now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rich. You and Tim. That's, That's it, it right That's now. Right. You and Tim. You're an exclusive company. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Willie Q. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it, Rich. While everyone knows him as Qualk, I think we somehow need to bring back Skeet. Or even Willie Q has a nice ring to it, and it's evident the passion that he has for his job. And if you can even call it a job for him, because he's definitely doing what he loves. Which you can also see why he doesn't have a problem saying yes in life. And while other nicknames might fit, there's no doubt that Qualk is it. Now that finishes episode 155. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 